Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Sarah Worthington. I am a pro-director here at the LSE and also a professor in the Law Department. And it gives me very great pleasure this evening to welcome you to the first of the LSE's Space for Thought series. The idea for this series emerged as a far more stimulating way of celebrating the completion of this new academic building. It seemed more exciting than just having a formal ceremony and unveiling a plaque and cutting a ribbon. And you have to say it gives us a far greater opportunity to demonstrate this fantastic new facility. And then the title of the series, Space for Thought, almost emerged as a follow-on from that. Of course, it reflects the use of this building for academic teaching and for research and for public engagement. It really is a space for thought. My job tonight is only to kick off this event, um, to thank the LSE's annual fund who took up this idea and have sponsored the series. The annual fund is a, a fund that collects donations from our alumni and from friends of the LSE and then decides best expenditure of the money. And this series was chosen as one of the good expenditures. So without more ado, can I declare this series launched and ask Professor Hugh Collins, who is the head of the Law Department, to introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And I think I get the pleasure of uh, introducing our guest this evening, partly because uh, the Law Department is the unfortunate position of having moved in upstairs where our office is, and, and indeed I teach in here each week on Tuesdays. Welcome to come along. Um, so it, uh, it is a great pleasure to have these wonderful facilities. Um, even greater pleasure though to meet my old friend and colleague Jeremy Waldron. We, we were uh, young lecturers together briefly at Oxford, but now he's a very distinguished professor at uh, NYU, New York University Law School where he teaches legal, political, and social philosophy. He uh, has many, he's written many books, of course. He has an honorary degree, uh, honorary doctor of laws from his original uh, university where he was an undergraduate, the University of Otago. So he's traveled the world, the English speaking world anyway. He came to Oxford, um, where we met um, to study with uh, Ronald Dworkin, uh, the noted legal philosopher, who I, I think probably Jeremy would concede has been a major influence on his work. They're both tarred with the same brush of being liberals in the United States. Um, and indeed, also public intellectuals. You'll see them both writing in the New York Review of Books, um, not entirely complimentary about uh, American foreign policy and local national policy. Nice titles like, um, When is it right to invade? Question mark. 
uh, questions about uh, whether a certain war was justifiable. Um, most recently, he wrote a, a very fine essay, which I hope George W. will read, called Torture and Positive Law, Jurisprudence for the White House, <laughs> explaining some of the ideas uh, about the meaning of torture, which of course is a, in a sense a predecessor to tonight's lecture. He's also, I think, provoked some controversy in more theoretical academic circles with his um, work on judicial review and exploring the, the proper limits of judicial review of government action in a democratic society, the tension between upholding the rule of law but also at the same time respecting democratic decision making. All this is written, I think, from a liberal perspective, an emphasis on rights, and uh, to the extent that I think I, it would be fair to say that he, he says that people have the right to act in ways that others disapprove of, others dislike. It's a strong liberal position. But the work of, but your essays that in fact I teach uh, here um, are exploring the connection between these ideas about freedom and liberty, the connection between those values and the importance that we need to attach to what sometimes are called social and economic rights or um, the idea that people need to be free from poverty and homelessness in order to be able to enjoy their liberal freedoms, a very important connection in my view. Um, so. I think that's probably enough by way of general perspective. He can speak for himself um, on the, this particular topic, but I, I can see that this is part of a broader project exploring uh, the meaning of constitutional ideas. And this is a very familiar idea both in the United States and in Europe from the European Convention on Human Rights, which is now incorporated into British law in the Human Rights Act. The idea that individuals have a fundamental right to be free from inhuman and degrading treatment. Our title then is Inhuman and Degrading Treatment, the words themselves. Thank you very much for speaking for us. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Worthington, Professor Collins. It is wonderful to be here. It's a, um, a privilege to inaugurate a Space for Thought series. And the um, Space for Thought I want to create this evening is some space to think about the meaning of these words in human and degrading treatment. To think about the meaning of those words before we rush to the bottom line of what we want to use them to uh, stamp out. I want to sort of just reflect a little bit on what it means to have committed ourselves to standards that involve these particular terms. So some of what you hear this evening is going to be a little bit of ordinary language analysis. Some of it's going to be a little bit of abstract jurisprudence about how to approach the meaning of terms like these. And some of it is going to be, uh, goodness me, literary, cultural uh, reflections, but always with this shameful specter in the back of our minds that we have had to begin taking terms like these uh, very seriously 
not just for condemning what happens in other countries, but at least so far as the country where I live, condemning what is done by agents of the United States government. So, um, as uh, Hugh said, this is part of a larger project that has included some meditations also on the prohibition on torture, which to our shame we have all had to begin writing and thinking about in the United States as well. I'm perhaps recklessly going to talk with the aid of a PowerPoint presentation. It will probably be a fiasco, but we'll see how we go. Um, but in the, the articles that I have published on torture, one of them in Columbia Law Review in 2005, one of them, oddly, in Theology Today, 2006, I talked about torture, but I said very little about the set of accompanying prohibitions that we find in many of the conventions and many of the constitutional provisions and the bills of rights that outlaw torture. I mean the prohibitions on cruel and inhuman and degrading treatment and um, punishment. So for example, the um, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights provides that no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. The formulation of the European Convention, which you mentioned a moment ago, is uh, equally well known. They've sort of dropped cruel, but they've still got the prohibition on inhuman and degrading treatment of punishment. And there are similar provisions also in national constitutions all over the world. So the South African uh, Constitution. Hugh, if you wanted to see the Sonnet Lumiere, you could go and take a seat on it. But <laughs> um, the South African Constitution. Uh, in the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, I'm a New Zealander, uh, and just to show that my acquaintance is not just with the English-speaking world in the uh, Constitution of the Federal Republic of um, Brazil. This prohibition, whose terms now begin to roll quite easily off our tongues, is somewhat different from the older language of cruel and unusual punishment that was used originally in the English Bill of Rights of 1689 and as you know was adopted more or less word for word in the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution um, and then adapted slightly in um, the Constitution of the State of Texas. Whether you can see there that Texas says cruel or unusual punishment and the United States says cruel and unusual punishment. And apparently, according to Justice Scalia, this is an enormous and important difference. Uh, uh, all right. And also, um, you find a similar provision in the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms from 1982. So there you have that language being boilerplated over three centuries uh, of um, drafting of bills of rights. In addition to these general provisions, you find similar language used in some more specific international instruments. So the UN Convention Against Torture uses the language of cruel and human and degrading treatment in one of its supplementary provisions, so that's supplementary to its main prohibition on torture. And common article three of the Geneva Conventions requires a slightly different wording, humane treatment for persons taking no active part in hostilities, which includes prisoners and detainees of all sorts. And it contains also a prohibition on cruel treatment and torture and a prohibition on outrages upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating 
and uh, degrading uh, treatment. So, anyway, there's a whole array of such, of such provisions all over the world and all over international law, all over human rights law, all over international humanitarian law. When I began my work on torture, I used to think that the main function of these provisions was to erect a sort of cordon sanitaire around the central prohibition on torture. The idea is well, we have to keep people away from torture no matter what, right? We have to keep people roughly in the green zone and away from the red zone. And so as well as building a big wall around torture, we've sort of built a fence around the wall or a minefield to stop people even approaching the wall. So I sort of had always understood until I really began, beginning, uh, began working on this project of thinking that the, the primary function of the inhuman and degrading treatment standard was to be ancillary to and supportive of um, the, the prohibition on torture. And I think now that's a serious mistake. I think it's a, it's a standard that uh, has terms of its own to use and work of its own to do. And what I'm going to try and do this evening is explore what that distinctive work is of the, the prohibition on cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, even over and above this cordon sanitaire function of keeping people away from the, the red zone. Obviously, our starting point is the language that's used in these prohibitions. Inhuman, degrading, these are highly charged value terms. A legal theorist would say that um, inasmuch as these provisions use evaluative predicates rather than purely descriptive predicates, then they present themselves as standards rather than rules. It's a sort of distinction well known to legal theorists. So the clearest case of a rule would be something like a numerical speed limit. Don't drive faster than 55 miles per hour. Yeah? Descriptive numerical language used all the way through, except for don't. Yeah? And a, a, a clear example of a standard in the same area would be a requirement always drive at a reasonable speed, right? where reasonable is more evaluative term and certainly a matter of judgment for people. Obviously, it's a difference of degree. In some terms, uh, a very, very standardish, like do the right thing. And some standards, like cruel and, and uh, uh, inhuman and degrading treatment, are somewhat along, edging along the descriptive end because they do have some descriptive content that we want to unpack, but nevertheless, they are roughly at the standard end of things, and we really are talking um, uh, about a standard here. As standards, then, they are necessarily going to be matters of judgment, and people's judgments differ. There's going to be contestation about what these terms mean, and as a result, a certain amount of indeterminacy or unpredictability in their application, and uh, many officials have um, professed themselves bewildered and alarmed uh, by this um, uh, prospect of, of indeterminacy. I have a quote from uh, a famous jurisprud uh, <laughs> here. And he's wrong about many things, President Bush. Um, but he's actually quite right about this, that uh, even with the best will in the world, it's not easy to figure out what these provisions require, what they permit, and what they forbid. They are, as President Bush says, wide open to interpretation. So we've got to figure out what are the appropriate strategies 
for interpreting terms like this. I'm going to go through five strategies, and obviously number five will be the one that I'm in favor of. Um, so we're going to be sort of moving up uh, a ladder here. The first strategy is saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with these. And just refuse to deal with these standards because they are too indeterminate to be of any legal moment. So, for example, um, do you know about the Alien Tort Statute of 1791? Probably not. Um, by some sort of administrative error, uh, the Founding Fathers gave federal courts jurisdiction to hear tort claims by foreigners against foreign defendants for violations of the law of nations, whatever that is. So in one famous case, which is not this case, a Paraguayan torturer spotted by one of his victims on the streets of New York was sued successfully uh, for torture, which is certainly a violation of the, of the law of nations in the federal courts. And the federal courts are obliged to consider uh, these claims. But when somebody brought a claim in this uh, 40 against Suarez Mason, case in 1988 in Northern California um, against an Argentine torturer charging him not only with torture but also with cruel and human and degrading treatment uh, of detainees. The case, the claim, or that part of the claim was dismissed on the grounds that these terms were too vague and too indeterminate to, to, to really form the basis, to form the basis of a uh, 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 alien tort statute. The alien tort statute is about as close as we get in the United States to the sort of Jus Kogan's generalized jurisdiction that you saw illustrated here in the Pinochet case, for example. It's a historical anomaly, but it's ours and we love it. Um, and there actually has been some quite good jurisprudence on inhuman and degrading treatment under this statute, but in this particular case they took the first strategy that I've mentioned. A second strategy, if you are going to deal with this, is to say, okay, that language is very indeterminate, who knows what it means, let's try and replace it with some other language that we're more familiar with. So uh, you can see I was going to have fun with the color scheme here. When it ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and when it ratified the Convention Against Torture, the United States entered this reservation. Yeah? It considers itself bound by the cruel and human and degrading treatment or punishment standard only to the extent that that standard means the cruel, unusual, and inhumane treatment or punishment prohibited by the amendments to the Constitution of the United States. They added that reservation into their ratification. A lot of countries said it wasn't a valid reservation. Maybe we could talk about that. But at any rate, that's all the United States regards itself as bound by so far as those two particular instruments are concerned. It's not that... that um, the language of, um, of uh, cruel and unusual and inhumane treatment or punishment is any more determinate, any less evaluative than inhuman and degrading. It's just sort of homegrown terminology that uh, um, the, uh, I think it was the Reagan administration, thought it might be more comfortable, might be more comfortable with. A third strategy actually does start to address the language of these provisions themselves, but it doesn't try to draw anything qualitative out of the meaning, the specific meaning of degrading or inhuman. Instead, there's a suggestion, well, let's just think of them as kind of quantitative variations. When people start maltreating or beating up detainees, they can hurt them a little bit, they can hurt them a lot, or they can hurt them severely. 
So maybe what these standards degrading in human and uh, torture indicate is a sort of a scale of intensity of suffering. And in some of the early work in the, in the, in the European jurisprudence on this, they suggested, well, uh, on, at, at the very bottom of the scale, excuse me, at the very bottom of, now it's hopeless. Okay, well, we can just use it as a Venn diagram. It's the, same, it's the same point, right? You get more intense towards the middle. So the least intense objectionable form of interrogation is called degrading uh, treatment or punishment. The, um, then as it gets more intense, as the suffering is more intense, we call it inhuman. And finally, if it gets very intense, so intense that it needs a special stigma, we call it um, torture. Now, again, you can sort of see what this might mean. It seems to me a very dumb way of parsing uh, this language, right? Because obviously the words themselves, if you're looking at them, are going to convey something more than simply a scale of intensity. And actually, there's no particular reason why we sh should conclude from Article 3 of the European Convention that they are to be put in this order, that uh, degrading is simply a word denoting low-intensity suffering. Yeah? Maybe degrading is one of the worst things that can happen to somebody. Who knows? But uh, it seems to me to be an open question. I believe that this uh, kind of disfigured early um, European Convention of Human Rights jurisprudence, this tendency to read it as simply a scale of intensity. A fourth approach, which I think the um, lawyers in the room might be more comfortable with, is, well, you take these standards that prohibit inhuman and degrading treatment, and they're standards, and they're a bit of an embarrassment as they stand, but what you do is you bring lawsuit after lawsuit, and you get decision after decision, and gradually things get narrowed down by the court's precedence. Yeah? And gradually what you can end up doing is elaborating the standard by uh, replacing the standard with a rule, or with a series of rules. So, for example, uh, you start off with your standard on the left there, and then you get a, a precedent that says solitary confinement is ruled out. And I'm just using these as examples. The actual decisions are much more complicated. But just as an example, you, you have a rule prohibiting under Article 3 solitary confinement, except in very exceptional uh, circumstances. So now we're beginning to get a list of things on the... Um, on the um, the right-hand side, which can effectively take over the regulatory role. So you get another decision that says short shackling somebody when it's not necessary to, to protect, them, protect other people from them is uh, prohibited under this standard. And then someone else says uh, force feeding in certain circumstances is prohibited. And I hope you notice, due to my artistry, that the standard on the left is getting smaller and smaller, <laughs> right? Yeah. And eventually, by the time you've added another dozen or so rules to this list, you've kind of lost sight of the original formulation. And what you're teaching your students is really, uh, every time they see Article 3, to think in terms of these precedents and these uh, rules that are articulated on the right-hand side. The list becomes the effective norm in our application of the provision. The list of prohibited practices is what is referred to when an agency is trying to ensure that it's in compliance. And I think this approach really is the modern um, uh, uh, case law, or the modern uh, uh, jurisprudence on inhuman and degrading treatment uh, under the European Court of Human Rights. It actually is a terrific body of jurisprudence that has emerged in the last um, uh, 20 or 30 years. 
Through its precedence, the European Court of Human Rights has established a set of presumptions and benchmarks on various issues relating to the circumstances in which official action might count as inhuman and degrading. It's a good, usable jurisprudence. Maybe there are one or two instances where Americans would feel the Europeans have been over-fastidious. The Reagan administration's decision to enter that, res that blue reservation I had a moment ago uh, was apparently occasioned uh, by its knowledge of a European case in which prison authorities' failure to recognize a sex change was held to be inhuman and degrading. And the Reagan people said, we can't have that, so we're going to replace it with cruel and unusual punishment. And one might mention a suggestion, not however adopted by the court, that flight paths into Heathrow Airport imposed inhuman suffering on those who had the misfortune to live underneath them. Um, but, um, but recently the court has held firm to its pos position that Article 3 should not be cheapened by overuse. So as those of you who are studying these matters will know, there's a very good, sound, detailed, complex body of jurisprudence here. But for all its complexity, what one misses in the European Convention of Human Rights case law, and what one misses in the textbooks that deal with it, is any explanation of how the standards on the left there are actually articulated in terms of these uh, rules on the right. Yeah? What is it about shackling? that makes it full foul of Article 3? Is it because shackling is degrading? And could somebody explain the degradation involved? I'm not saying it's a hard job to do, but we would like to see it uh, explained. What is it, what is it about solitary confinement? Why have we decided to regard that, I guess, as inhuman? Right? Not that I doubt that it is inhuman, but law is about words. Law is about explaining things and articulating things. Consider, for example, the case is still distressingly common in Eastern Europe, in Turkey, and in the former Soviet Union, in which somebody is made to disappear by the authorities, and frenzied inquiries by their parents are dismissed with callous indifference, maybe dismissed year after year. They never know what's happened to their son. And so the parents eventually bring a lawsuit, claiming that they, the parents, whatever's happened to their son, they, the parents, have been treated in an inhuman and degrading manner. Now, the, the European Court has been receptive to these complaints, to its great credit, but the manner in which it articulates that receptiveness leaves a lot to be desired. In the earliest cases, which is a Chechen case, there's just a finding that the parents have suffered a certain level of anguish. There's a finding that this is the fault of the authorities. And that's it. Yeah? Therefore, it's at least degrading because it's over the threshold of anguish for the lowest level of intensity. But there's no sense that it might be worth discussing why the word inhuman or why the word degrading applies. And again, I'm not doubting that this is inhuman suffering, but I would like to see it explained. Is it degrading in as much as the parent is treated as somebody beneath contempt, somebody whose inquiries don't matter, somebody whose inquiries can be dismissed as impertinent? degraded from the status of private citizenship? Is it inhuman because the authorities are indifferent to what every human mother or parent must feel about the predicament of their child? Yeah? That's the sort of explanation that I would like to see. And you don't get it in the case law, and you don't get it in the scholarly analysis. The scholarly analysis in the textbooks just consists of the list of precedents, sentence with footnote, sentence with footnote sentence with footnote, and there's no analysis of exactly what it is 
about these words over here that would help us think through these particular issues. So in a, a, what I'm complaining about is that this sort of non-analysis detracts from the thoughtfulness that the standard seemed initially to invite. The standard seemed to say to us, think about what you're doing. Think about whether it's inhuman. Think about whether it degrades the people that you're dealing with. But now we simply consult a list of rules. The result is a decline in the level of argument, perhaps even a decline in the level of moral quality of argumentation that the original standards seem to require. And also, and this is a further concern, it's not clear how something giving a list, developing a list of rules and teaching a list of rules helps people become good arguers in front of the court, or helps the judges themselves in figuring out what they're going to do with an unusual new case. Right? No doubt the list of precedents or the subsidiary list of rules can function as a, usual, as a useful guide for those who are concerned primarily to predict the behavior of the courts and figure out what is necessary to keep on the right side of their uh, decisions. They may be good for police chiefs and ministers of justice. But it cannot be the basis on which the courts themselves approach the matter, nor can it be the basis on which counsel advance new arguments. It's more or less the point that we used to make in jurisprudence against the legal realists and others who tried to define law simply in terms of predictions about what the courts will do. Such a definition is of little use to the court itself when it is grappling with a new case, when it is actually in the throes of trying to decide what to do. That task requires active argument, not just the paradox of self-prediction. So I'm not satisfied with this approach. So we finally come to the Waldron approach, the fifth one, the one uh, that uh, I really want to favor, the ordinary meaning of the terms uh, themselves. Now, um, I do mean ordinary meaning, not lawyer's meaning. One of my intellectual and judicial heroes is Arthur Chaskelson of the South African Constitutional Court, now retired. And in, in a very important death penalty case, uh, Chaskelson was asking whether the death penalty was a cruel and human and degrading um, punishment under the South African Constitution. Bear with me, he eventually decided it was, so don't worry. Right? And he began to give the sort of analysis that I would be looking for using the ordinary meaning of cruel and the ordinary meaning of inhuman and the ordinary meaning of degrading. But then he added this. The question is not whether the death sentence is a cruel and human or degrading punishment in the ordinary meaning of these words, but whether it is cruel and human or degrading within the meaning of section 11.2 of our constitution. And I understand what he means, but it sounds like he's saying to the ordinary person, back off, this is technical stuff, right? This only looks like ordinary language. This is lawyer's talk. This is like words like certiorari and estoppel. Yeah? Related only as a homonym to the ordinary. And, I, and with all due respect uh, to um, President Chaskelson of the court, I think that's a, a, a mistake. Um, I do think actually in human rights law in particular, it is tremendously important that the language be familiar to the rights bearers themselves. And one of the things that I said in my work on torture was that under the auspices of John Yu and Jay Bybee and uh, 
uh, Addington and uh, Haynes and others, the Bush administration was striving to turn torture into a technical term. A technical term with a highly restrictive definition. So that when somebody would complain that they had been tortured, they would say, no, no, you don't understand how we use that word within the meaning of the law, right? Bentham would be rolling over in his grave. So my approach is resolute in its focus on word meaning. It's going to involve what for many of you may seem like an annoying deference to the dictionary. I'm well aware that words do many things in law besides convey their dictionary definitions, but I still want to focus on the complications and components of word meaning that it's exactly the function of a good dictionary to record. And I'm going to proceed on the basis of a set of assumptions that we ought to just have in the back of our minds as we approach a, um, uh, a provision like this. The first I've already mentioned, the terms we are considering are evaluative terms. We should not lose sight of this, and we should not approach their interpretation on the premise that the choice of evaluative language was some sort of mistake, or some sort of folly, or fudge, or failure of nerve on the part of the drafters. They gave us evaluative terms. They gave us terms that invited judgment. They could have done what some constitutional provisions do and actually prohibited specific things. The constitution of Argentina prohibits whipping in prisons. Yeah? Nothing wrong with that, but the people who drafted these provisions used the evaluative terms in some sense that we ought to keep faith with that. And it seems to me that the elaboration of a standard using evaluative terms is not the same as the elaboration of a rule using descriptive terms. They, they involve different ideas. The elaboration of a standard should involve some movement from a general evaluative idea to a set of more specific evaluative ideas. We take a term like inhuman and we try to open up the specific evaluations that it embodies. You might think that... Um, there's nothing specific to be said about the meaning of value terms. They just express attitudes like hooray or boo. But actually, as the work of countless philosophers in the post-war era like Philippa Foote showed us, not all evaluations are simple. Some of them are complex combinations of description and evaluation tangled together. We call these thick moral predicates, as opposed to thin ones like good or right, thick ones like courage. Yeah? Virtue. Some evaluations nest inside one another, so you have to approach them in a certain order, directing our evaluative attention at each level to some particular aspect of a situation. An evaluative word often packs into its conventional linguistic meaning resources that can be useful for the elaboration of the provisions in which it appears. So that's my first assumption that value language is worth unpacking. My second assumption is that these are particular, not all-purpose evaluations, these prohibitions on inhuman and degrading punishment. They don't just mean bad. Don't inflict bad stuff on people. We are invited to look for a particular sort of badness, and it's the purpose of the word meanings of these terms to tell us what sort of badness that is. Thirdly, we should be attentive to the fact that some words have been chosen and some words have not been chosen. The relevant norms don't prohibit unjust punishment. They don't prohibit inefficient or pointless punishment. They prohibit inhuman or... I mean, you might be able to make an argument that pointless punishment is degrading. Yeah? But you have to make that argument. You have to begin with the meaning of degrading and work your way over to pointless. Rather than say, well, this is just an opportunity to put pointless uh, into play. 
we should assume that different words used in these provisions mean different things. The UN Human Rights Committee is on record as saying it's not necessary to establish sharp distinctions between inhuman and degrading punishment or treatment. I'm not going to follow them on that. We may find a certain measure of overlap, but we have to purchase that retail uh, by our analysis, not uh, uh, wander in wholesale. Above all, we have to respect the categorical logic of the provision. The provisions we are considering prohibit treatment or punishment which is cruel and human or degrading, whatever else it is. So, for example, if somebody thinks that waterboarding is necessary in certain circumstances to prevent terrorist attacks, that may or may not be true, but it doesn't affect the consequence of its being judged inhuman. If it is inhuman, then it is prohibited by the provisions we are considering whether it is necessary for defense against terrorism or not. Right? It says no inhuman punishment, period. There's no, there's no unless or except built into this. And this point is sustained, as the law students in the room will know, by the categorical language of the articles themselves and also by the very explicit statement in the International Covenant and in the European Convention that these are standards that are not derogable in times of uh, emergency. I don't mean that attendant circumstances can never be relevant to the question of whether treatment is inhuman or degrading. For example, European doctrine holds that shackling a prisoner is degrading unless the shackling is necessary to stop the prisoner harming others. Now you might ask, well, there you've got a sort of harm to others clause being inferred. What's the difference between this invocation of an attendant possibility of harm to justify what would otherwise be degrading treatment and, say, the invocation of the danger of terrorist attack to justify what would be degrading treatment in interrogation? The question's a fair one, but I think it can be answered. In the shackling case, what is degrading is the gratuitous use of chains without any valid justification. That's degradation. Once the justification for using the chains is clear, the element of degradation evaporates. Because right? the person is now no longer being gratuitously treated like an animal. But in the interrogation case, we, you know, where we have the sort of the lap dancing with Muslim suspects or the Quran flushing or any of the other delights that the American authorities have developed, in the interrogation case, we choose treatment that is inherently degrading because we believe that it is essentially degradation that will help us get the information that we want. The purpose of avoiding future attacks is not a way of undermining the claim that the interrogation technique is degrading. It's a way of justifying the selection of a degrading uh, technique. And as such, it's pro prohibited by the provisions we are considering. Let me be even more... Hang on. Jumping ahead of myself here. Let me be even more provocative... Some scholars have argued that a prohibition on, say, cruel punishment is going to work differently in a society which believes that God mandates amputation for theft and stoning for adultery than in a society where that belief is not uh, respected. But that need not be true either. It's quite consistent to say of a punishment that it is cruel and that God ordains it. And the logic of these provisions is Cruel punishment is to be prohibited whether God is thought to have ordained it or not. Right? There is no God exception. So when God says, I haven't got a slide for this, I'm afraid, should have. 
I have wounded you with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities. For behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. I mean, God can be cruel. But the fact is that whether it's the will of God or the will of the people, these provisions prohibit cruel treatment. It's prohibited if it's cruel, no matter what else it is. Okay, finally, after all this throat clearing, let's turn to the particular predicates and their particular meanings. And I'm not going to talk about cruel, although we can discuss it in the discussion, but I am going to talk about inhuman, and I am going to talk about degrading. The first point to notice, and here, because I'm a New Zealander, I'm citing a terrific decision by um, Chief Justice Sean Elias in Tamara against the Attorney General, um, by the whole Supreme Court, actually. It's a, it's a wonderful, just from this, earlier this year, about some maltreatment of prisoners in Mount Eden Prison in Auckland. And she pointed out that the concept of inhuman and inhumane are not the same. And actually, uh, Americans often get this confused. Last February, a very fine op-ed piece on the use of waterboarding by a former Guantanamo Bay prosecutor was subbed by the New York Times with the internal headline, Waterboarding is Inhumane. But that was not what the colonel said. He said it was inhuman. And, and that's a separate matter. As um, Sean Elias has said in her analysis, um, uh, uh, in, uh, inhuman is, as it were, a stronger term of condemnation than inhumane. According to the dictionary, none of the 19th century dictionaries until quite recently record inhumane at all, except as an obsolete form of inhuman. It may therefore be concluded that inhumane in current use has been formed afresh on humane in order to provide an exact negative to the latter, and it's thus a word of milder meaning than inhuman. So what tends to happen in the American debates is that they say, oh, 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 we're being accused of being inhumane. Can you imagine anything less ridiculous, uh, more ridiculous uh, than that? And inhumane sounds as though they're being accused of not being benevolent or philanthropic or altruistic. Yeah? But in fact, the terms that they're being accused of is inhuman treatment, not just inhumane treatment. It's a way of discrediting um, the, the, um, the accusation. I mean, I would notice that uh, some provisions of the, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights does have, as well as the prohibition on inhuman and degrading treatment and punishment, a separate requirement that also requires humane treatment of all detainees. Right? So there's sort of layers at work here. And so for, in, in some regards, uh, we have a requirement of humanity as well as a, as a prohibition on, on um, inhumanness. Now, the term inhuman seems to refer to the absence of something to do with our common humanity or the presence of something at odds with our common humanity. There's something about being human that seems supposed to make particularly problematic either the action of inflicting the treatment referred to. The inflictor, the tormentor, is being inhuman. Or there is something about the suffering of the person who is being treated in this way, which is inhuman. We can use the term in an agent-oriented way, or we can use it in a, in a, um, in a um, victim-oriented uh, way. 
The dictionary seems to favour A, the agent-oriented way, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, inhuman as applied to persons means not having the qualities proper or natural to a human being, destitute of natural kindness or pity, brutal, unfeeling or cruel. These are all characteristics of the tormentor. It is the person meeting out the treatment who is inhuman. The term picks out what David Hume called the vice of inhumanity. I actually think both senses are in play in these prohibitions, but just focusing a little bit on the A side for a, for a while, um, Judge Fitzmaurice in the Ireland case from the 1970s, um, rather conservative judgment, but an interesting suggestion that the concept should be confined to kinds of treatment that no member of the human species ought to inflict on another, or could so inflict without doing grave violence to the human as opposed to the animal element in his or her makeup. And again, the thought is you focus primarily on the soul or the humanity of the tormentor and look at the damage that his tormenting is doing to that rather than focusing on the, on the victim. It's an agent-centered uh, idea, but it's still relational in a certain sense. There are certain things that humans, quiet humans, cannot do to other humans, whatever they can do to cats and dogs. This relationship might be explained by some sort of sympathy or human resonance whereby your suffering sets up such a resonance of sympathy in my soul that it makes me desist from inflicting it because I feel your pain in that overused phrase. Now this certainly will not work as a psychological hypothesis. There are sadists who enjoy the infliction of suffering and there are torturers who even if they don't derive pleasure are certainly willing uh, to do it for what they regard as good purposes. Humans, as humans, can be brutal savage and cruel. We may want to label them inhuman, but they remain human beings. As uh, Levinas has put it, the inhuman comes to us through the human. But the substance of what is conveyed, I think, is a normative claim that the person inflicting it is being, in some sense, untrue to his humanity. He has entered some sort of realm of pathology relative to ordinary human functioning. Or in uh, Professor Cohen's uh, 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 terminology, some sort of state of denial uh, relative to ordinary human functioning. So someone's ability to inflict this suffering might lead us to classify him as a monster or a pervert or as sick or as damaged. But we have to acknowledge at the same time that this doesn't seem to affect the cheerful alacrity with which he goes about his business. Moving over to the uh, right-hand side of the um, if we, if we are to use inhuman suffering to refer to the suffering itself rather than to the tormentor's state of character. It might be described as inhuman if it were thought that no human could or should have to put up with it. This is an appro approach that looks to the limits of our suffering nature. The pain, the amount of pain we can endure, the weight we can bear, the loneliness we can put up with and so on. But again, it's not easy to parse this meaning of inhuman what does it mean for a person not to be able, as a human, to put up with something or to endure it? What sort of prediction are we making when we say that? Is it supposed to predict death, physical collapse, nervous collapse, unconsciousness, madness? That that's what will happen if the person has no choice but to put up with it? Are we predicting a collapse of human faculties here? I think, the, again, the implicit claim is normative, not just descriptive. Perhaps we should talk about suffering that no human can reasonably be expected to endure. 
But if we adopt that formulation, we have to be careful that the reasonably is not just sneaking in an all-purpose evaluation here. We would want to say something like, suffering that no person can endure while maintaining the normal aspects of human functioning that we, um, that we um, think are important to humanity. And there, if you like, we have nested one evaluation inside another evaluation. We have nested our evaluation of what it is to be distinctively human, to be able to talk, take care of oneself, think clearly, speak, and so on. And we've nested that inside our understanding of the human suffering as suffering that starts to put a limit on those capacities. The other point I would make, and it's down the bottom here, is that um, inhuman treatment is not just about the infliction of suffering. I think it's also about treatment that might fail in sensitivity to the most basic rhythms and needs of a human life. The need to sleep, the need to urinate, the need for daylight and exercise, perhaps even the need for human company. There are certain sort of basic rhythms and needs of daily human life. We can imagine what it is like not to be allowed to use a toilet. We can imagine what it is like to be deprived of sleep. This commonality of human experience seems to be what is being appealed to in some shape or form with this standard. And the inhumanity of insensitivity to these rhythms may be important in itself, quite apart from any pain that is associated with it. Above all, I would say we should remember the context in which these standards are supposed to operate. These are supposed to operate in situations like detention, incarceration, captivity, where one person is comprehensively vulnerable uh, to others. And the suggestion is that those in total control of another's living situation have to think about the conditions that they are uh, imposing and whether they are minimally fit for a human being with characteristic human needs, vulnerabilities, life rhythms, and so on. That's a taste of the sort of analysis I would like to see more of for inhuman. What about degrading? Degrading is a word that is originally associated with rape. So Anthony Blunt was degraded when his knighthood was taken away by Queen. In a different sense, I would be degraded if Hugh had introduced me as though I was a graduate student or something like that. Um, <laughs> some of you may be old enough to have seen this movie, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Do you remember Colonel Nicholson, the Alec Guinness character, who says that uh, he's in a prisoner of war camp run by the Japanese, and that while it is true that he, he will permit his private soldiers to be used for manual labor, he will not permit his officers to be used in this way because it would be degrading to them on account of their rank. And he suffers inhuman punishment for his stand on degradation. Um, based on the novel by um, Pierre Boulle, who was given a credit in the movie even though the screenwriters weren't because the screenwriters were blacklisted by the uh, Hollywood authorities. Of, sorry, this is entirely, <laughs> entirely uh, uh, inappropriate. I, th I, I think it's pretty clear that intriguing though this is, this stuff here, this is not what the human rights conventions have in mind of degradation. It's not about insensitivity to military rank. It depends on an idea of dignity, 
that is more egalitarian than that. The word dignity, which is so important in human rights discourse, has traditionally had a hierarchical reference. One would talk about the dignity of a king, or the dignity of a bishop, or the dignity of a professor. I have argued elsewhere in an article um, a year ago in the European Journal of Sociology that the modern notion of human dignity has not abandoned that idea of rank, but rather equalized it. Every person now is like a bishop, or a duke, or a king. Every woman is a duchess, or a queen. Hitting the humblest person is now the same sort of sacrilege as hitting an aristocrat. Raping the humblest woman is the same sort of violation as raping uh, a, a noble woman. Yeah? And people are entitled to the consideration, both in the terms of their incarceration and the mode of their trial, their homes are to be regarded as castles, and so on. So I've been toying with this idea that the modern notion of dignity is not a repudiation of the idea of rank, but a, um, a, 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 a generalization of it. All humans enjoy the same very high rank. It's based on an idea of an old Berkeley colleague of mine, Gregory Vlastos. There's no reason why you should have to read all this, but Gregory basically said, you know, our society is like a caste society with one very high caste. Well, we are like an aristocratic society with one rank of nobility that everybody occupies. We haven't leveled down. We have leveled up to a very high level of dignity. Of course, we fall short of this in innumerable ways, but to understand the ideal of human dignity is to understand this equalization of rank. Anyway, it's an intriguing, it's an intriguing um, idea. Um, Vlastos's idea is a constructive one. This is what we have decided to do. This is how we have decided to run our society. But there are also more ontological theories about the inherent dignity and high rank of every human person. One idea is that the human species has a rank that is much higher than any other natural species. In Catholic theology, for example, we are higher than the animals and a little lower than the angels. Right? And we all occupy that high rank. And we are all um, blessed with the dignity that goes with it. And so it is an affront to treat even the meanest human being as though they were uh, a rank below this. Connected idea is that each human has a high rank by virtue of being created in the image of God, and so on. Those notions of an inherent rank uh, for all human creatures. Not necessarily appealing to Peter Singer, but there it is. Um, so anyway, these conceptions of either constructive dignity, constructive equal dignity, or ontological or theological dignity can help us think about various kinds or modes of degradation. Let's run through a few of these. If you think that humans are higher than the animals, then one form of degradation would be bestialization. Treatment more fit for an animal than for a human. Treatment of a person as though he were an animal, as though he were reduced from the high equal status of human to mere animality. Treatment that is insufficiently attentive to the differences between humans and animals. Whereas cruelty might be a term that is used to treatment that would be bad for a dog and bad for a human being. Right? But degradation seems to get at the difference in status here. So for example, a human is degraded by being bred like an animal, used as a beast of burden, beaten like an animal, herded like an animal, treated as though he or she did not have language, reason, or understanding, or any power of self-control. It might also include cases of post-mortem degradation, like the dragging of a body behind a jeep 
in one of the cases about Zimbabwe that was brought in the United States under the Alien Tort Statute that I talked about 30 minutes ago. So bestialization is one mode of degradation. Instrumentalization, treating a human as though they were a thing, the sort of Kantian sense of using a person as just a mere instrument or means being used in a way that is not sufficiently respectful of humanity as an end in itself. I think this sense of degradation may be particularly important with regard to sexual abuse. And there are, again, to our shame, a number of uh, important uh, decisions that have had to deal with this as a form of degrading treatment. A third kind of degradation might have to do with a special dignity associated with human adulthood. So you might think of infantilization as a form of degradation. Now, this is not now from the human to the animal, but it's from the dignity of adulthood to the, to the status of a child. So it's degrading to treat an adult human as though he or she were an infant, or in ways appropriate to treating an infant. This is particularly important with elementary issues about care of self. Um, a number of the European cases have dealt with treatment that involved a person being forced to relieve bodily functions in their clothing. And I won't even begin to talk about the uh, <coughs> about, about the use of this by the Americans. I mean, the crucial thing here, with regard to these elementary issues about care of self, is again that caution that I mentioned a moment ago. Remember the context. We're dealing with people who are utterly vulnerable, utterly sort of held. And the ability to respect them as beings who are taking care of themselves, even in a prison cell, who are not just to be left shackling, shackled to the floor in a pool of their own urine or something like that, is, I think, tremendously important for the vivid sense of degradation. I mean, anybody would say that, of course, that is degradation. But it seems to me it's really important to understand why it's degradation and understand the detailed <coughs> articulation from the... Article 3 standard or the Article 7 of the International Covenant standard to this particular uh, form of outrage. The final form of uh, degradation that I wanted to mention, this is actually based, by the way, as the footnote at the top says, on, on an account of humiliation by Avishai Margalit in his book, The Decent Society, is demonization. The prohibition on inhuman and degrading treatment has particular importance in the way we treat our enemies or terrorists, or criminals, those we have most reason to despise. One of the functions of the degrading treatment standard is to limit the extent to which we can treat somebody who is bad or hostile as though that were all there was to say about that they are just the embodiment of evil. There are specific prohibitions in the Geneva Conventions against putting prisoners on display and we might also mention in this connection the ancient biblical injunction in Deuteronomy on the number of stripes that could be used if somebody is sentenced to be beaten. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest your brother be degraded in your sight. Yeah? I, mean, I don't want to say that 39 stripe corporal punishment is okay. It's the underlying concern that I'm trying to get at. There's some modes of treatment, even of people we have reason to regard as bad, uh, can demonize them and lower them below the level of the human. So as I say, this is a taste of the sort of analysis that one might do if one just wanted to focus on the rich resources 
associated with these words themselves. I have a couple more points to, to make and then we can finish. There's obviously plenty more that could be said under all of these headings and maybe we'll get to it in discussion. But let me say something finally about the moral judgments that are inevitably involved in elaborating these standards. Throughout this presentation, I've emphasized that words like inhuman and degrading are not just blanks to be filled in. We have to give ourselves space for thinking about what these words mean. They require us to make evaluations of specific kinds, not just specific evaluations, but evaluations of specific kinds. And what I've been doing for the last 10 minutes is thinking aloud specifically about the kinds of evaluations that these are. In all of this, the element of moral judgment, as you will have seen and heard is inescapable. And some lawyers in the room may be familiar with um, Ronald Dworkin's work on what is sometimes called the moral reading of similar provisions in the uh, US Constitution. When Dworkin reads a prohibition on cruel punishment or unreasonable search and seizure, he reads those as instructions to the judge to go ahead and actually make a value judgment in his or her own voice about what is unreasonable or what is cruel. Don't quote anybody else. Go ahead and give it your own best guess. Depending on one's moral self-confidence, which in Professor Dworkin is enormous, this can, this can be a lonely, a vertiginous, or an exhilarating responsibility. Putting Dworkin's approach together with my analysis here this evening, we can imagine the judge asking herself as honestly as she can and in as objective a spirit as she can muster. What forms of treatment are such that no human should reasonably be expected to endure? What really is inhuman? Right? She doesn't just quote from precedents. She tries to ask that complicated question herself and answer it. Or what is the special dignity that all humans have? And what counts as derogating from it? What really is out an outrage on human dignity? What really is degrading? She's trying to get at the moral truth on these specific questions. On Dworkin's approach, the task of the judge is to pose these questions as complicated questions of critical morality and try and get to the objective right answer. Any sensible person will recognize, of course, that as with all objective inquiries, answers will differ from one person to another. But the formation of the opinion is nevertheless supposed to be subjected to the discipline of presenting the question and the answer in an objective spirit. Not just asking, what do I feel? But maybe what I feel is wrong. I should say that I am not entirely comfortable with that approach to what's going on fundamentally here. I think a better way to understand these provisions might be that they purport to elicit some shared sense of positive morality. Some common conscience that we already share, some code that already exists or resonates among us. I believe that these prohibitions make an appeal to social facts, not just a moral truth. They evoke, they appeal to what is supposed to be a more or less shared sense among us, which we hope desperately still exists. A shared sense among us that 
there's limits on how one human being should treat another. We have common humanity and standards of common humanity. Some sh a more or less shared sense of basic human dignity, a more or less shared sense of what it is to respond appropriately to the elementary exigencies of human life. The provisions we've been studying try to remind us that we share such a sense if we do and bring it to the forefront of our attention and they require it to us, us to apply it. And of course the nightmare of the last seven years is the sense to which we might be appealing in a vacuum to something that has long ago atrophied and withered uh, away. A phrase that is sometimes used is that these standards prohibit conduct that shocks the conscience. Not just meaning the individual conscience, but the conscience, the sort of knowing together about these standards. It's a massive act of faith in social morality. But it seems to me more satisfactory to view these provisions in the social and positive light than to see them simply as invitations to make our own uh, moral judgments. Now you might say, well, this is all very well when we're appealing to a standard in one community, but what about a standard that's shared in the whole world? And it's very late and there's no time to get into this, but um, um, I just want to remind us of a couple of points that uh, most cultures actually do have views on ways in which it is appropriate to treat humans as such, not just ways in which it's appropriate to treat their members. 164 nations have signed and ratified the International Covenant. Most cult cultures do see in the modern world the value of some sort of convergence on these matters. I'm not saying that we have that convergence, but we seem to have a shared aspiration uh, towards it. And even when standards of dignity differ, most cultures also see the importance of respecting other cultures' conceptions of dignity. Yeah? So, I mean, it's not altogether a matter of relativistic uh, despair when we're thinking about the appeal to these shared standards. If I'm right, the next slide will tell you that the presentation uh, is over. Uh, it's not particularly conclusive, but I hope you see how you can concentrate on the words themselves and actually uncover some of the richness of uh, these provisions. Thank you very much indeed. I'm just wondering, there seems to be uh, an apparent contradiction between your view on judicial review, on which you're quite an eloquent sceptic, and the position you seem to be taking at the end there that you're quite comfortable with um, judges with their limited democratic competence to make these kinds of, these kind of decisions about our common humanity and so on. I'm just wondering if you can maybe explore that a little. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I can ask uh, perhaps two questions, uh, Professor Waldron. The, the first is, when, when you debated the 
the meaning of degrading. It seemed to me that we, we were sort of going back to rules versus standards. In other words, the criticism that you started with, which is we must expand on the standard as opposed to replacing the standard with the rule. It seemed to me that we were going back to replacing the standard with the rule uh, when you made those various examples about um, uh, 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 specialization, uh, instrumentalization. So what you would find in practice is that instead of a court expanding on the, on the standard of degradation, it would replace it with instrumentalization. So what, what, what the outcome would be, it is degrading to instrumentalize a human being. So I just want a clarification on that. Then the second one is perhaps the, the, there is a, a something to be said about relativism. I understand your criticism about it, but in South Africa, we've moved from one extreme end where there was a death penalty, human beings could be executed by, by the state and there is a decision that you cited, the Makwanyatis, that said that was totally, totally uh, unacceptable for the reasons they gave. Into another sort of difficulties that currently face contemporary South Africa. There are two recent cases that I just want to comment on. The first was a case where a suspected terrorist uh, was suspected of being involved in uh, the bombings in Tanzania had uh, fled to South Africa and was arrested by the police and handed over to US authorities. And he brought an application. Unfortunately, it was only after he had been sent to the United States. But there was a case that was brought. And essentially, the argument was it was torture and it was inhuman and degrading to hand over a suspect to a country which, which, which has the death penalty without seeking an undertaking from that country that the death penalty will not be executed, given that South Africa itself has outlawed the death penalty. Now, in those cases, you can see the kind of difficulty that a judge faces, where the judge looks at the actual act performed by the South African authorities, which is not the act of execution or the act of threatening to execute, but simply the act of handing over a suspect so that he can face a trial in a different country. What would you say about those kind of uh, difficulties? And there's been a number of those cases arising in the South African context. Uh, thank you. I can make a very small um, point about the infantilization dimension of, of degradation. Uh, I, I completely agree with your, your point. Um, but I just wanted to ask you um, whether you think it's really the appropriate um, moral counter-category to infantilization to speak in terms of adulthood. Because it seems that one of the possible outcomes of this is we um, see the children are possibly left out of this uh, account you've given here, Michelle. I imagine it's not all what you wanted to achieve. So I wonder if we should perhaps rather speak um, not in terms of um, the opposite of infantilization as being treating others like adults, but treating them as persons. And so children would be included in that, um, in that prohibition against infantilization also. <coughs> One of the things I was trying to do with those four categories, and this will address the first of, of, of uh, your questions as well, was to plumb the complexity of our concept of human dignity. And it does seem to me part of our concept of human dignity includes the notion that there is a special dignity for different phases of life. So even though there is a dignity to childhood, 
and there is a dignity to infancy, and there is a dignity to poopy diapers and, and uh, all those joys of bringing up a kid, which you know uh, uh, we all are familiar with. There is a special degradation uh, associated with human dignity in treating somebody who is beyond that stage of life. And so this wouldn't mean that children don't get the protection of the degradation standard, but they would get it um, in terms of the complex situation with regard to their dignity as children. And that would not derogate from the fact, not undermine the claim, that there is a special dignity associated with adulthood. I mean, I'm sensitive to the point that this might have sounded like I was replacing one standard with four rules, right? No degradation was being replaced by no demonization, no instrumentalization, and so on. But I did intend it to be read as a form of trying to unpack the complexity of the standard and trying to relate each of these uh, to the, this very complicated notion of equal human dignity and the special status of human beings. Given the sort of beings that we are, that we do do things for each other, so we have to have some complex notion of instrumentalization and means and ends. Given that we, our lives have a certain trajectory, from childhood to adulthood, given that um, uh, we have to make moral judgments about each other, and so on. So the idea was to try and see the dignity of the human as complex, but not simply replace it with unthinking rules. Now, um, I'm actually not going to comment on the, um, the uh, South African terrorist case, except to say that, of course, it's very distressing, and there is very, very good jurisprudence <laughs> that the South African courts that they were involved should have been responsive to, which is even if the death penalty per se is not condemned as cruel, inhuman, and degrading in world terms. Nevertheless, the death row syndrome in the United States, not to mention the Guantanamo syndrome in the United States, is certainly inhuman and degrading. So um, from what I hear from you, this might have been a serious misjudgment by the authorities. On the point about judicial review, and the power this seems to give to judges. I have never been an opponent of judicial authority. I've never been an opponent of judicial review of executive action, and most of these cases are reviews of executive action. Most of the maltreatment we're dealing with is not pursuant to legislation, although sometimes uh, there is legislation involved. But even if you have a system of weak judicial review, as you have in the United Kingdom under the Human Rights Act, Judges still have to make decisions. They still have to form their decisions in order to decide whether a declaration of incompatibility is appropriate or not. Now, um, if they decide that somebody has been treated inhumanly, that will have a particular consequence in the British constitutional scheme. If a judge decides that somebody has been treated cruelly in the United States, that has a different constitutional consequence. But the judgment is inescapable in either case. When Justice Elias gave her judgment under the New Zealand Human Rights uh, Bill of Rights Act, there wasn't even a declaration of incompatibility to be done there. But the judge was still required to render a verdict. So there are two questions. How should the judge do their work? And what final authority should be accorded to it when there's a disagreement with another branch of government? And I've been trying to, to, to separate these two. So I'm not, I mean, you're absolutely right that I'm a fanatical opponent of judicial review of legislation, but that has not led me to try and say, well, the judges should be just left to do mechanical work. Judges have been instructed by their legislatures in these cases to use a standard of inhuman and degrading treatment, not to use some other standard that would minimize their powers. The, the, the British Parliament and the Human Rights Act 
instructed them to use these value predicates. Yeah, so they're stuck with it. But then there's a further question of what constitutionally should happen after that. Thanks. Terrific talk. The only, the only question I had was about the title, the words themselves. That might make people think that you're just doing conceptual analysis, when in fact, at the end of the day, it seems like you're asking council and citizens to make really robust moral and political judgments. So the position you're against is just the one that turns standards into rules. Look at this adjective, and you can tell that waterboarding is inhuman without any further, you're, you're against that. You say, no, we have to make very elaborate, elaborate, evaluative judgments while looking at this concept of inhuman and really spend some fleshing it out. But once you take that approach, it's not just the adjectives, right? I mean, it's not just inhuman and degrading and cruel. It's also the treatment, right? Treatment's the generic term, but treatment could be interrogation, or it could be punishment, or it could be deterrence. And people might have different judgments about whether thumb screws for interrogation in a taking time bomb case is degrading, whether thumb screws for punishment is not, or you know, thumb screws to deter the resistance from doing what they're doing. And so once you've gone from the adjectives and the nouns, you might even have to take up the, the adverbs, right? I mean, this is the agent-centered stuff. You, you couldn't think about torturing kindly, but you know, someone could torture with regret <laughs> rather than with great enthusiasm and vim, right? So once you take the whole sentence into account in the particular situation, it looks like you are asking judges and citizens to make very robust judgments about the shared sense of, so of positive morality, these social facts. That doesn't sound like conceptual analysis anymore. And, and once it looks like it's that complex of a judgment, I'm just wondering how much commonality you think there actually is, and even within a certain society. Hello. Can I ask um, a very brief question connected to your essay on homelessness? Um, it may actually tie into Lake's question about treatment to some extent. Because when we focus on the context, which I think you're right, part of our worries about these things are contexts where people are totally helpless. But there's also the context where people are totally neglected that you speak so powerfully about in your essay on homelessness. So then I wondered whether you could tie your discussion here about torture and punishment to perhaps some of the other issues about degrading human treatment that are raised by issues of neglect and poverty and so on. Um, it will probably relate to the previous question as well. Uh, what I was wondering, if there are some general standards in society that we, we all agree to, and um, obviously watching somebody suffer and somebody being tortured isn't human, you would probably agree. What about media and media showcasting people being tortured? And then on the receptive end, the, the viewers, how would they 
are, aren't we then being degraded by sort of being forced? Okay, nobody forces us to watch media, but we have to agree that in this society where media so has a huge presence, we can't avoid it. So, how would you would you say that we could also sue governments, media? How does that work then? <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, there are very few good, sorry, there are very few popular police dramas in the United States that don't seem to involve somebody torturing somebody else. Uh, Jack Bauer's behavior in 24, week after week, was constantly cited as though it were a serious argument for the maltreatment of Guantanamo detainees. Um, in editorials and op-ed pieces. So there is no doubt that popular culture and the sort of things that we love watching on the TV or in the movies, whether it's Clint Eastwood or Batman twisting or breaking somebody's arm or whatever it is, have had a powerful corrupting effect. A very, very powerful corrupting effect uh, in the United States. I think it is uh, worth dwelling on that part of your question rather than worrying about whether we are being degraded or, or I mean, it's, it's possible that we are, well, of course, in a sense we are, by being forced to watch this nonsense. But, um, but the crucial thing is to think about the effect that it's having on the common, the common morality. And I mean, we've ha been having this great debate in the United States about torture, with people, large numbers of people, seriously believing that, of course, it's okay uh, to use torture in extreme ticking bomb type situations. And why they haven't just come out of that from their philosophy classes. They've come at that because they see this happening heroically week after week in the movies. On the point about the homelessness, I'm going backwards, uh, but on the point about, I mean, it's certainly true that with regard to many of the things that I was talking about, comprehensive vulnerability, care of self, the, the uh, inhumanity of certain circumstances, Many of the, the deep concerns that underlie these standards that I've been talking about are concerns that would also underlie other forms of uh, uh, outrage uh, at forms of social neglect. And it's been a common theme, as you know very well, uh, throughout uh, the work that all of us have been doing uh, on social justice issues to try and find some common themes between the prohibitions against doing things to people and the prohibitions against neglecting people. And I think that's very, very important. I think it's equally important to respect, on the other hand, the specificity of these, of these requirements, that they are prohibiting treatment and punishment. And although it is possible that certain forms of neglect do have to be regarded as treatment. Somebody was uh, locked up in a courthouse in the American South a few months ago, not because anybody wanted to have them stuck in a cell with no food, no water, no bathroom over a long weekend. But somebody just didn't do their job. You know, they didn't think it was worth checking, right? And I think that would count as as inhuman treatment. And if that counts as inhuman treatment, then I'm with you. I'm not entirely sure why uh, using fire hoses uh, at uh, one or two hour intervals every evening to soak the homeless to make sure that they don't fall asleep in a public place isn't inhuman as well. So um, I understand the point. Now, um, Leif, the difference between conceptual analysis and robust moral judgment, that's one issue. 
And there's also this further issue about not just focusing on these particular words, but also the, on the sentences themselves, as well as the words themselves. Look at the whole thing. It doesn't just prohibit being inhuman, it prohibits inhuman treatment or punishment. This is a, 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 a integral sentence, and, 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 and I couldn't agree more. I think it's very important. I do think that the treatment or punishment stuff does remind us of the points that I made about context. Right? We have to remember that what's being, what's being um, prohibited here is degradation, particularly in circumstances where people are comprehensively vulnerable to issues of degradation. And so I entirely accept the point about, it's an old point that goes back to Longfellow and probably beyond, which is not to think that interpreting law is just simply like interpreting words. It's interpreting words in sentence contexts and then interpreting those sentences in a whole body of law and interpreting all of that in the, in the context of certain overarching and underlying concerns. So on that, I uh, agree very much uh, with what you said and I accept uh, the point entirely. I actually don't accept the other point that you made, which is to contrast an approach that proceeds in terms of robust moral judgments and an approach that proceeds in terms of conceptual analysis. Because when you are conceptually analyzing an evaluative term, like inhuman or degrading, you are analyzing it precisely in order to find out, with some specificity, what robust moral judgments the use of that term is inviting you to make. If it's an evaluative term, then robust moral judgments is going to be the bottom line of the analysis. right? Robust moral judgments are there, and you need to unpack them, find out what they are. So I don't see that conceptual analysis is necessarily dry in this regard. That's why I took as one of my patron saints in this discussion, Philippa Foote, and all that work that she did in the 1950s and 1960s, taking thick moral terms, which remained robust all the way through, and trying to show us that parsing their meaning led us to a deeper and more elaborate understanding of the particular robust um, judgments. And that's why I, th I think I would want to insist in the end, you said that on, on the analysis that I would give, I was inviting judges and police officers and citizens to make these robust and complicated and quite nuanced, but undoubtedly moral judgments. That's true, I am, but I'm doing that, I hope, as a mode of analysis in order to show that those who framed these provisions want people to make these judgments. Yeah? But they want them to make specific judgments, not just all-purpose judgments. So when they framed these provisions, even though they used very, very um, evaluative and indeterminate language, they weren't using language that might as well have been substituted with a simple slogan, do the right thing. Right? It was more specific than that. And so the idea was to get to the specificity without losing sight of the robustness. Okay? That's it. Good. So it just remains for me to do a few thanks. Uh, thanks uh, to you, the audience, I think, for asking a particularly acute set of questions this evening. Um, I feel very proud of you that you've been tormenting Jeremy rather rather well. I didn't have to intervene. Um, and um, secondly, just to say how wonderful it's been to have you here. When Howard 
Davis, uh, Sir Howard Davis asked me uh, uh, in connection with opening the new building who I'd most like to come and talk, to give a talk. It, it didn't take long, about three or four seconds to say Jeremy Waldron, and it's fabulous that you've come. A bit lucky. So thank you very much for coming. Howard also has the view that all lawyers do is talk about words, and I'm afraid that we've sort of <laughs> proved him. Proved him right on this, but in a very sophisticated and elegant and thoughtful way. And I'm most grateful to you for showing us how to do it well. Thank you very much. Come again.